This is another interview brought to you by TheBatmanUniverse.net. Hi, this is Stephen Hill, game director on Batman Arkham Asylum. Hi, this is Lee Bermeo. Hi, I'm Brandon Vietti, director of Under the Red Hood. Hi, this is Gail Simone. Hi, this is James Tucker. Hi, I'm Dan Jurgens. Hi, this is Bruce Tim. This is Michael Jelinek from The Brave and the Bold. Hi, this is Andrea Romano. Hi, my name's Dan DeDeal. Hi, my name's Claiborne Moore with the CS Moore Studio. Hi, this is Jim Lee. This is Kevin Conroy. Hey, it's Sean DiMaggio. Hello, everyone. I'm Batman, and you're listening to my podcast. Today we have with us uh, Robert Greenberger, who is the author of the Essential Batman Encyclopedia. Now, for those of you who haven't bought this, which we've been telling you to go buy it because it's such a great book for the last couple months, he's with us here to talk all about it. So welcome, Bob. Hi. Thank you for having me. First off, let's, let's just start off with, tell us a little bit about the book. <laughs> it's not a little book. It's, uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's an A to Z look at Batman. Supporting characters, friends, foes, locales, uh, organized in a manner that lets people understand the context of each appearance so that we cover pre-crisis, post-crisis, changes in zero hour, final crisis, well, not final crisis, but uh, infinite crisis, uh, to let people see how characters have grown and evolved since their introduction. Um, it's copiously illustrated with material pulled from the uh, last 70 years' worth of comic books. It's 316,000 words and well worth everybody's uh, money. Well, reading your intro in the book, you mentioned that you started off using uh, Michael Flesher's Batman Encyclopedia to, as a sure. starting point for the book. How much, how much more did you have to do to really get to the book that we have now in comparison to what his book was? Michael's research started with Detective Comics 27 in 1939 and more or less ended between 1966, 1967 in Batman and Detective and World's Finest Comics. Michael's approach was that every story occurred to the Batman. Um, he completely ignored the Earth-1, Earth-2 introduction. He did not cover Batman's appearances in other DC titles, including the Justice League of America and the Brave and the Bold. As a result, when we began this project, it was decided to be as comprehensive as humanly possible. Short of Batman's appearance in Jerry Lewis, I think uh, just about every canonical Batman appearance uh, in a DC Universe title, um, you know, was consulted uh, as we formed the book. Okay, so I guess that brings me to the next question is, which is, what sources have you used yourself besides his book to collaborate all of your information? Okay, uh, well, there was the Encyclopedia of uh, Superheroes and the Encyclopedia of Supervillains, both done by my uh, good friend Jeff Rovin. There was the other sort of compendiums of superhero and supervillains that have been published. Tons of websites uh, dedicated to the Batman, and obviously... 70 years worth of comic books. Do you, do you yourself have like a pretty massive comic collection or do you have sources that you use that have pretty big collections? My collection peaked at about 33,000 comics uh, before I had to winnow it down because I ran out of room. But between the comics I have, plus all the um, DC archives and trade paperback uh, 
Erotica collections. I'm going to admit that I turned to the illegally scanned and downloadable to read comics online uh, to look up stuff I could not look up elsewhere. And I had access to the DC editors to ask about stuff that was currently in the works. And I had John Wells. John Wells is, is the most amazing resource who graciously lent me um, the databases he has been maintaining I, I think since birth, um, that gave me a really good checklist to double-check character appearances for heroes, villains, and a lot of the supporting characters. Robert, let me ask you, looking through the whole book and through the history of, uh, of Batman, who was your favorite illustrator from here? Well, that's a, you know, that's a tough one because I don't know if there's a single favorite. There's a lot to like from, obviously, the, the top guys like... Neil Adams and Jim Lee and Jim Aparo. But in researching this, I regained a complete new appreciation for Irv Novick and continued to marvel at what Dick Sprang managed to do back in the uh, 40s and 50s. Yeah, especially with the, with what they had to work with. I mean, they didn't have the pins and the, the nice uh, technology of paper as we do now. Um, you know, being like a, 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 a current artist, you know, trying to you know, get into the industry, I admire what those guys did with what they had back then. Well, you know, doing pen and ink is an art form that has existed since, you know, 1700s, I guess. But the pen tips and the brushes that the guys used, and I'm talking Bob Kane up through uh, Jim Lee and Scott Williams today, you know, it's been a constant evolution. But what these guys were able to do with the constraints of uh, conventional storytelling when they were at work and what they were able to do considering the deadlines involved, because back Back in the day, guys like Dick Sprang and, and uh, Sheldon Waldorf and Carmen Infantino, they couldn't miss a deadline. You know, they, they blew it by a day. They weren't getting the next job. You know, Julie Schwartz or Jack Schiff would hand it to the next artist available. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's the discipline as much as the style and talent uh, that's important. One of the questions we were asked by one of our uh, listeners was, with all the recons over the years, what do you think are some of the big questions that you feel have been left unanswered? Interesting. You know, there's not a lot about Martha's background, his mother. We know she was a socialite. We know she worked in the same, or operated in the same social circles as Thomas Wayne. The Batman Family miniseries that John Moore wrote a couple of years ago gave us some of her background, but there's a lot more to be done with her in those early years of raising Bruce Wayne, you know, before that fateful night at Crime Alley. That That's one that occurs to me. Beyond that, you know, so much of the rest of it's been explored or re-explored. Um, you know, I'm not sure there are a lot of gaping questions left. That's a good point with the Martha Wayne um I can't really think of any off the top of my head except for maybe a little more back history of Gotham City. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Since it is really big, you know, from what we've talked about. Or maybe more exploration of the the year one aspect of Batman, more of his uh, worldwide Well, it's training. actually, it's not so much the year one aspect. What you're talking about is, is when he left home as a teenager before he came back uh, at age 25 to become Batman. Exactly. And yeah, I mean, uh, in the 1980s and early 90s, some of that was explored. I know that John Byrne wrote a three-parter, I think it was, that killed a lot of them off. Jim Owsley, when he was writing Batman very briefly, Briefly introduce some of those people who trained them, but you're right. I, there really has not been any sort of authoritative view of those years. I guess not so much a year one, but more of a pre-year one. 
Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Robert, let me ask you, with the, with all your uh, background knowledge, what is your favorite obscure character? Wow. It's a real interesting one because, you know, obscure characters are probably the ones who appeared for one story and were kind of interesting and, and have never been seen again. I don't know if I necessarily have, from that bunch, would have a single particular favorite character. Instead, I, w- I was noticing that through the years, Batman and Bruce Wayne really, in, in the context of Batman and Detective, didn't have a lot of supporting characters. I mean, yes, there was Dick Grayson and Alfred and, and Commissioner Gordon, but beyond that, Bruce Wayne didn't seem to have any friends or neighbors. Before Lucius Fox, he, he didn't have any consistency at Wayne Enterprises or, or, or the Wayne Foundation. A lot of missed opportunities there. Uh, even Batman's relationship with the cops, because Gordon couldn't be everywhere. Uh, there was this uh, comic relief character called McGonagall who appeared uh, briefly in the early 40s. And it really wasn't until you know the 80s or so before there were any other recurring police officers. Uh, so to me, it was more missed opportunities than, than obscure favorites. Well, I guess that brings us really into the next question, which is what do you feel is the most underused, underdeveloped character that shows the most potential? Huh. Well, today, it's probably Gordon who, you know, since he's come back from retirement post-52, there's been very little done with him. In today's times, he is the character in most need of attention. Prior to that, there were attempts made at introducing some characters that, that failed for one reason or another. There was a policewoman named Pat Powell that Julie Schwartz introduced early in his run as the editor, uh, who was being designed as a potential romantic interest for Batman and for whatever reason came and went so briefly until the showcase reprints, I, I don't think anyone remembered her or her father, Bulldog Powell, who was uh, her father, also a police officer. Th- that could have been interesting. Uh, another question that we had from uh, a listener was, what is the most overused plot device in Batman's comic history? You know, there were, I can't tell you how many stories where Batman would do something out of the ordinary to track, yeah, basically go through these convoluted machinations to trap a criminal. He would open up a museum. He would start tap dancing in the street or something. I mean, it was again and again, he would do this convoluted thing to lure the criminals. I mean, it's very common in the 40s and 50s uh, where that was done. The next most obvious would be some element of Batman's mythos was introduced for this one story was never seen again, such as the secret of Batarang X, where, you know, on the cover we were told, you know, he never dare use it and it turned out to be a Batarang large enough for Batman to be launched off of. Oh, yeah, Just, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Some silly mm-hmm. stuff. With the silly stuff, do you think a lot of that silly stuff um, really stemmed from late '40s, early '50s? Because it seems like a lot of a lot of times when people talk about the comics, they kind of ignore some of the time traveling aspects of Batman, the space travel, a lot of that interdimensional travel, all that stuff that was really, really big during probably the late '40s, uh, most of the '50s and kind of going into the 60s. Oh, yeah. What you have to look at is that in the late 40s, after World War II ended, uh, the superhero titles were dying off rapidly. And to keep Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman viable, they needed to come up with different stories. And it was decided to move away from the saboteurs and spies and real deadly threats instead of more 
youth-oriented stories featuring the familiar rogues uh, because comics were increasingly being seen as a juvenile medium. Then DC decided to keep it as general audience-friendly as humanly possible as comics were under fire from Frederick Wortham and Seduction of the Innocent through the Kefauva hearings uh, that examined comics as a potential cause for juvenile delinquency, which led to the formation of the Comics Code. So as a result, the, con- the stories were kept somewhat simple, somewhat, you know, uh, the Joker would be, you know, seen playing in a sandbox thinking he's really lost his marbles uh, when it was all, you know, some ploy to rob something. Mixed in with all of that, we did see uh, under Jack Schiff as the editor, slowly but surely, he played with the the mythos. We learned about Lou Moxon being the man behind Joe Chill who killed Batman's parents. We learned about uh, that first Batman suit that uh, Thomas Wayne wore at a costume party uh, dealing with Lou Moxon. We learned a little bit about who taught Batman how to throw the Batarang and... Yeah, there, there are bits and pieces that were added in there. That, and there were some murder mysteries, out and out right mysteries, where there were three or four uh, people uh, suspected of a crime, and Batman had to deduce it, and he was the detective. But Schiff also felt he had to go with what was popular in the day, and in the day were things like uh, mutated insects in the movies and science fiction themes, and so he introduced that into the Batman books. Jack Schiff is largely considered a failed uh, Batman editor when a re-examination shows that arguably he kept the franchise alive until he could hand it off to Julie Schwartz. Uh, It's not that the books were necessarily headed for cancellation, as is uh, the conventional wisdom, but he started to reintroduce the rogues through the reprints in the the early Batman 80-page giants in the 1960s, and he gave us the Catman, who appeared in a a whole group of stories over the course of two years of Detective Comics uh, in in a semi-serial fashion. So he was... Then he gave us Clayface, you know, the Matt Hagen version. So oh, he he tried to mix it all up. He's just remembered for the stuff that didn't work in today's tastes. And I think part of that is also because um, one of the comments uh, that I know Bob Kane was really well known for was that he actually stated that the 60s TV show was actually the thing that helped this comic series not be canceled. And at the same time, with all those out-of-the-ordinary stories that were being written at the time. Do you think that maybe those stories were starting to fade out and the 60s TV show actually did help out? Or Oh, it helped, it helped out tremendously. I mean, DC, back in those days, kept a giant ledger. And there was a uh, color photographic reproduction of each cover. And under it were all the sales figures. And you flip through this book, which stopped being maintained around 1966 or so. So you could trace how Batman sales were in the early 60s then versus the TV show. And the Batman book itself was selling very well compared to the rest of the DC titles. Eh, Maybe it was dipping a little bit, but not to the point of cancellation. And then the TV show just pushed it into the stratosphere, into numbers comic sales hadn't seen since the early 40s when they were newer novel. And yeah, the TV show helped across the DC line, which is why Batman was prominent on so many covers time and time again, and why he showed up in places like the Jerry Lewis title, uh, whether he belonged or not. The TV show helped the sales, and the TV show popularity, though, did cement in everybody's minds that the comic books were rejuvenalia, uh, which I think hurt their chances to grow uh, for quite a number of years. Yeah, I, I think the the TV show, well, any media in that matter, has always given it a little bit more of a, a boost in sales. 
Do you think that's still the same case um, current times? Do you think that the fact that the movie, the movies, you know, now are so good, do you really think that helps boost the comic sales, or is comics right now to a point where they're not really going to boost as much as they would be back in the '60s? Paul Levitz, DC's president and publisher, told me a while back that. Pretty much dating back to Superman the movie in 1978, there has been very little correlation between the movie and the comic book sales. Today, Batman Begins and The Dark Knight certainly have boosted the trade paperback sales, the archive sales, hopefully the Batman encyclopedia sales. But uh, the individual issues, no, that then no, um, these days that's really still driven by the comic market and the creators and the, the events happening in those pages. Mm. You know, um, when we're talking about the, the early years of Batman, is there any element of that early years that you would like to see reincorporated into the current mythos? Uh, like along the lines of what Morrison has done with the Batman's uh, otherworldly stories? You know, I, I'm. it's an interesting conceit on, on Grant's part to try and treat these 70 years of Batman stories as have having happened to this Batman who arguably has been operating 10 to 12 years. That really stretches credulity. As far as elements from the past that you know should be incorporated today, honestly, I don't think there are any. Because back then, the stories were so self-contained. You know, so the archetypal elements, like the Bat-Signal and the Bat-Cave and Gordon and, and the Rogues Gallery, they're, they're still part of the book today. Uh, because they're still valuable. You know, you were speaking about earlier about Thomas's wings uh, when he wore the first costume in, right. to that uh, to that party. That's what um, Grant had brought back. A lot of readers might not have known that from, uh, I, I guess, from the like how you said that this Batman has been operating for like the past ten years. They're right. not used to that. Absolutely, what, what... just like people don't remember that sensory deprivation chamber that apparently went into gave the black glove the opportunity to do to mess with his head all came from the story that uh, i believe gave us robin dies at dawn uh the zura and R that he's referring to were a couple of stories uh featuring an alien batman who had come to earth uh to get tips from from our batman um you know all of that stuff yeah all that stuff were stories from, from the 50s that grants uh resurrecting and weaving into the current continuity i'm seeing on some of the message boards you know, people questioning why DC hasn't released it, like a companion volume of, of reprinted stories of of these uh, elements that uh, Grant is referring to. You know, so much is being made of this sensory deprivation and being driven over the edge and, and what's going on in the RIP. And it's like, you know, people are forgetting that he may have been in the sensory deprivation tank for 10 days in this particular story, but he also isolated himself virtually in the same setup in the Batcave in Legends of the Dark Knight 19 and 20 when he locked himself in for 30 days to... Uh, uh, go cold turkey from Venom. And that didn't seem to send him mentally over the deep edge. And, and forgetting stuff like that or not referencing stuff like that is, you know, actually, you know, doing a disservice to the reader. Well, on a completely separate note, what did you think of The Dark Knight? I found the movie very entertaining. Uh, in retrospect, uh, you know, after letting it settle from, from an amazing popcorn movie experience, I'm not necessarily loving the, you know, I'm giving... Dark Knight, uh, Gotham City, the hero it needs, and Batman suddenly, you know, uh, being this outlaw believed for having killed Harvey Dent. Largely, there were a lot of really interesting sequences that probably should have been trimmed. I certainly would have saved Aaron Eckhart for the third film and introduced Two-Face here and not finished it there. 
And honestly, beyond that, I think Bruce Wayne's character is wholly underserved by this film. I, I think they forgot him as a character. So it was really, really good. It could have been better. Honest opinion. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so what do you think of the current direction of the Batman comics? I'm fairly critical of Batman R.I.P. because, honestly, uh, Grant is telling a story that doesn't have me emotionally interested because uh, he hasn't made me care about the characters. Uh, he introduces Jezebel Jett, and Batman is as comfortable revealing his ID to her after about 15 minutes as he was with Selina Kyle after years. And I don't know a thing about Jezebel Jett. I don't care about Jezebel Jett. I don't understand the role she's playing in his life. Same with the Black Glove. This mysterious manipulator out of, the thi out of thin air has been behind everything forever. And I don't know who he is. I don't know what he wants. And I don't know how he got into the Batcave as easily as he did. I don't care. I'm, I'm really not enjoying this R.I.P. storyline. I think Paul Dini's doing a far better job in Detective. I care far more about what Hush did to Catwoman's heart than I, than I care about anything that's happened in R.I.P. lately. The R.I.P. tie-ins aren't tying in neatly, so I'm wondering how Nightwing is, is uh, at Arkham Asylum about to have a lobotomy when he's being surrounded by all the rogues in New York City in his own title. I'm just not getting it. Again, I think, I think Dini's doing a far better job on, on Detective, and I'm really hoping that that, that this pays off in some sort of satisfactory way so when we get to the next storyline to fight for the cowl uh, I care again you know um, spe you know speaking on that uh, I mean we, we love Paul Dini we, we love his work uh, big fans of his work through through writing this did you find any stories or along the way did you find stories that you more related to that writer? From this Batman, from Batman's mythos? Well, uh, okay. Obviously, I couldn't read all 70 years worth of stories over again. Most of which I had read at one point or another, you know, growing up as a comic reader or as an editor at DC. I was reminded all over again how good Frank Robbins was as a writer of Batman, um, coupled with Denny O'Neill. So together, the two of them really helped evolve the character starting around 69, 1970. You know, he's remembered for Man Bat, but he also did some really nice one- and two-part stories uh, that were just good Batman stories. I'm, once again, really impressed by, by you know, what Steve Englehart managed to do in six issues that, you know, other writers uh, at the same time couldn't do for years in Batman. You know, the David V. Reed years uh, concurrently were just, you know, really lackluster in comparison. I think given what they had to do, but Jerry Conway and Doug Mensch did yeoman's work treating Batman and Detective as basically a bi-weekly serial and kept coming up with real interesting spins on the characters and the relationships, adding a lot more of that Marvel soap opera-y aspect, keeping you interested. The last question that we had from a listener was, what do you hope comes from, I guess, post-RIP? Once RIP is over with, what do you hope happens in the comics? Interesting question. I really thought a more mentally and emotionally centered Batman in the wake of uh, Infinite Crisis in 52. So I, we pick up the one year later with uh, James Robinson's face to face. Uh, I thought is where we should have been and gone forward and uh, that's what Paul Dini was doing and now all of a sudden we've got, we've got this whole RIP thing where Batman is no longer emotionally centered and, and you know is tortured and so I'm really hoping to get back to a Batman we can we can root for that we like you know there, there's as much interesting stuff to say about Batman as there is Bruce Wayne uh, and if it requires somebody being in the cowl yet again for a period of time as we had with Asriel or Dick Grayson 
Just tell me a good story. Make me care. I like that. Yeah, I think we share some of the same uh, visions that you do where this uh, where this book should go after uh, IRP. You know, these days I'm a reader like everybody else. You know, I don't ask the editors for tips uh, unless I have to in a professional capacity. And, and fortunately, you know, the projects I've been working on lately haven't required that. So, you know, I'm a reader and a fan like you guys. Yeah, I wanted, I wanted to ask you, while you were making this... Uh, I wanted to ask you, what kind of a fan were you? Because at the beginning of the book, I noticed that you thanked uh, Edwin and Joanne Greenberg. I'm taking this, this is your mother and father? Yeah. Yes. And they gave you your first uh, Superman comic, right, when you were age six? Yes. Who's your favorite character? Is it Superman or Batman? <laughs> Uh, you know, it's interesting. DC comic readers can pretty much be divided into Superman fans or Batman fans. And while I like them both, I'm definitely more in the, in the Batman camp because I've done a lot of professional writing about Batman over the last two years. Uh, you know, he's really grown near and dear to my heart. But you know what? My fa- favorite's still Green Lantern. Green Lantern. That's something that we don't hear very often. Yeah. You know, and I, I, gr- I grew up loving the ring and wanting to be part of the core. I thought it was such a great concept to be able to travel the galaxy with all these other people, you know, fighting the good fight and then the ring being able to do all this magical stuff because, you know, you, you, know you, you want it badly enough. Yeah. The willpower aspect, I mean, that was just great stuff. Robert, I want to thank you for coming on the show and uh, giving us your input. Um, the book is The Essential Batman Encyclopedia. It's available all over the place. Check Amazon out. I know it's been on there forever. That's where we all got it from. So thank you, Robert, for coming on the show. My pleasure. We hope to keep in contact with you and hear back from you again. Anytime, because I do have a couple more Batman-related projects coming up in the future that DC has not announced, so I can't talk about quite yet. But, yeah, we'll have opportunity to speak in the future. All right. Appreciate it a lot. Awesome. Thanks. We are actually going to give away a copy of the Essential Batman Encyclopedia. So if you'd like to get a copy, just email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net with your information, and we'll pick a winner and we'll give one out.